Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Several years ago, my youngest daughter, Laura Joy, then six or seven at the time, were enjoying one of our favorite pastimes, disc golfing in the swamp forests of the low country of South Carolina with the gators and mosquitoes. It was on the ninth fairway uh, that my idyllic afternoon was rattled. LJ was walking just a few steps ahead of me when I happened to look down as her foot stepped right over a three-foot-long copperhead just sitting right there. And I froze, and I said, Laura Joy, freeze. Don't move. And we miraculously were able to get her out of the way of that copperhead, and for some reason she didn't step on it. Well, the reason, we, I believe, is the mercy of God. It, didn't, it neither struck at her nor did she step on it. But it it's sure rattled me. It was rather unsettling. But... But what it did do is not only unsettled me, but it, it started me on to this rather weird exploration into venomous snakes. <laughs> and, and it kind of started with the venomous snakes of South Carolina, and then it began to branch out. And, and one of the things that I've discovered is that not all snake bites are created equal. Um, there are different types of venom that affect the body in different ways. So there are hematoxic venoms that destroy blood cells, and there are cytotoxic venoms that, that cause great pain and corrupt flesh, and there are hematoxic uh, or uh, cytotoxins that are, no, cardiotoxins that attack the heart, and neurotoxins that uh, shut down the nervous system. And the most dangerous snakes are those that have uh, various types of toxins that work together to to cause great dis- destruction and all rather fascinating, I suppose, unless you're alpha-diaphobic, in which case all of this probably causes you to squirm a bit, bad pun intended. Uh, fear not. We move from snakes to James. Now, some of you might prefer to stay with the snakes, but back to James as we resume our preaching series entitled Integration, Connecting Real Faith and Real Life. And, and my point of the whole toxicity thing is that there are a number of spiritual toxicities that James addresses in his letter. Uh, there's the sin of partiality. There's the neglect of the poor and the needy. There is the danger of jealousy and pride. But one he returns to again and again is the unbridled tongue and corrupt speech that causes untold damage to the body of Christ. It is the toxic venom that destroys another person even as it dissolves our own souls. So this evening we explore just two verses from James. And I'd like to, with you, I'd like to look at the dangers of this venom, symptoms that you might be infected, and then I hope to point us to the anti-venom. James writes, do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. 
goodness. In all of my years as leading of, of teaching, leading a classroom, and then as a headmaster leading a school, I do not think there was an issue that caused this hair to go gray faster than people speaking evil against one another. Sometimes it was the harsh words spoken in anger over a game at recess, and those are the easy ones. Other times it was the spreading of gossip in little circles at the lunch tables where you knew exactly what was happening. Or it was the cutting joke meant to exclude, belittle, and ostracize. Or it's the faculty room at the latest uh, grumbling and mumblings at the decision made by the principal. Or the jealousy-fueled slander at someone else's good character. It's just pervasive. And I mean to tell you, it starts young. It's like kids don't even need to be taught it. And frankly, aside from the very, very young, it's not a stretch to say that all of us seated here have been both a victim and a perpetrator in this area of evil speech. Undoubtedly, we've been wounded by the evil words of others. And undoubtedly, we've wounded others with our own speech. James says, do not engage in evil speech against your brothers. But he doesn't leave it there because he knows, as I came to learn, it's not enough to simply say, don't do this. We need to get to the heart of the matter. It always needs to go down to the heart. And so he makes several interesting connections that I've wrestled with in these verses. And and the main connection that I want you to see is the connection he makes between speaking evil against a brother and judging a brother. He puts them side by side. And here's the insight that I think James points us to. The evil words spoken and a judgmental, critical spirit go hand in glove. When we speak evil against another person, it almost always comes from the position of making ourselves the judge. When we cease to become a sibling, a fellow human, a brother and a sister, and we self-elevate to the judge's bench, speaking from a morally superior position. You see that? Uh, This is what Jesus is addressing in the gospel passage from Matthew that David read where, where Jesus talks about specks and logs. He says, judge not that you be not judged. With the measure you judge, you will be judged. He asks, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own. Now I need to make a necessary brief caveat here. There is, of course, the proper and right judgments that we as Christians must make in the course of our lives. There is evil, there is good. And with the guidance of the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit in the course of our lives, we are indeed called to discern between them. And sometimes when our discerning, we are even required or called to confront the world around us or fellow Christians about matters of right and wrong. However, as Paul also reminds us, when we do so, we are called to speak the truth, you know the rest of it, 
in love. It's the love part that's very often forgotten. It's the love part that reminds us that when we do have to speak to another or confront that which we see as wrong, that we are neighbors called to love our neighbor as ourselves. Which means when we are in this process, we do not belittle, we don't aim to talk down to, but we speak from the posture of humility. Which means we're a sibling and not a judge. Which means we don't use the truth to punish, but we do so to restore and to redeem. But what Jesus and his brother James confront in us is the fault-finding, judgmental spirit that issues forth in venomous words against other people. And as I said, it's, it's rampant. It's a temptation that it impacts us all. One of my favorite preachers to read is the Scottish minister, Alexander McLaren. He lived several hundred years ago. But he writes of this passage, this gospel passage. The judging of which Jesus speaks sees logs in a brother's eye. That is to say, it is one-sided and fixed on faults, which it magnifies, passing by virtues. Which is to say, we see all that's wrong, and we pass right on by that which is praiseworthy. He goes on to write, That mestophelian evil spirit of detraction has wide scope in this day. Literature and politics, as well as social life with all its rivalries, are infested by it. Well, it hasn't changed, has it? I mean, is the political scene uh, not rampant with it? Are not the, 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 the literature, the movies, not rampant with, with it? He goes on to write, And it finds its way into the church and threatens us all. The race of fault finders we always have with us, blind as moles to beauties and goodness, but lynx-eyed for failings, and finding meat and drink in proclaiming those failings in times of affected sorrow. Well, it hasn't changed in 200 years. In fact, you could almost make the argument that things are exacerbated with the rise of social media and email and the like. Because as Don and I were talking before the service, now you can offer critiques of someone without even having to see them. It's a disembodied ability to critique and judge. And if we're not careful, that disembodied tendency to critique and judge just begins to to run all of our life. So that we become, well, just filled with it. But how do we know if this is us? What are the symptoms that we may be infected with a fault-finding, judgmental spirit that invariably expresses itself in speaking evil of and toward others? Well, I developed a, a really easy test that's simple for me. All I have to do is get in my car and drive from one side of Grove City to the other under a time crunch. If I'm operating from a fault-finding, critical place of judgment, it becomes evident really quickly as I attempt to get down Main Street with any sort of pace. All right, now most of you that didn't land, so clearly you don't have issues with driving the way that that I do. 
So for those of you who, who may not have any trouble navigating the traffic of Grove City, let me give some other diagnostics. I find Tim Keller really helpful uh, here. Diagnostic number one. We have developed a fault-finding habit of mind. How do we know if we have this? Everyone around us, except for maybe a couple people, or except for maybe our select group, are incompetent morons and fools who simply don't get it. But we got it. When we have this fault-finding habit of mind, we are easily annoyed, consistently irritable, and cranky. Diagnostic number two. It involves listening to the way that you speak to and about others. Learning to listen to the words that you say. And asking, are the words you're using building others up or tearing them down? Are they driving people away or drawing people in? Are they a means of getting even or getting back at someone else for a wrong they may not have even known they have done? Or are they to reconcile and restore? One of my seminary professors, professors uh, told us about how the Spirit of God revealed that he was speaking to his sons in a consistently crushing way from a hypercritical, judgmental heart. And he realized that far too often, he was tearing down and driving away and shaming his boys. And he said he was deeply convicted by this eye-opening diagnosis. And so what he did is he went and he took a note card and he wrote a ratio on it. And he put that note card on the refrigerator so that as soon as he came from the office into the, the home, his eyes fell right to it. I don't remember the exact number, but I, th- I want to say it was something like five to one. And he said, Lord, help me to utter five words of blessing to, the someti- to every one sometimes critical word that I may need to say. You may want to look at the ratio. Diagnostic number three. Do you actually enjoy not only telling, but hearing about other people's faults? You know, there's something savory and salacious that finds itself satisfying and makes us feel superior and self-righteous when we hear about the failings of others. I I had to confront it in myself. Uh, To my shame, it gives me no joy to say it, but in my old position as headmaster, people used to love to come into my office and tell me about the latest scandal at the nearby school. Now, externally, I might have put on some airs. Yeah, that's too bad. I hope that changes. But I've had to reckon with, there are times I kind of enjoyed it. There was part of me that thought, well, I might have some issues, but I don't have that. My friends, that is the root of a dangerous, fault-finding, judgmental spirit. And my brothers and sisters, I would, I would imagine that all of us are inclined in some way to this kind of heart. 
and a heart that manifests itself at times in speaking evil against others. And you know this. But let me point you to the anti-venom this evening. What is the anti-venom to this critical judgmental spirit? Well, first, there is some recognition, uh, self-recognition. It's the grace of the work of God that allows us to, to acknowledge that it's there. And that diagnostic work, that it's there, it's a start. And it's not an insignificant one. Now, with the self-acknowledgement may very well come a sense of guilt and remorse toward those you may have hurt with your words, a sense of guilt toward God who in his law commands us to love our neighbors ourselves, that we are not to slander, we are not to gossip, we are not to revile, we are not to express our hatred in words. That's why James says when you speak evil against a brother or judge a brother, you're actually speaking evil against the law itself. You're doing the very thing that the law says not to do. And so it well may be that you have a sense of guilt and a sense of remorse and, and a sense of conviction of areas in your life where you have not lived to the law of God. You've done that which the law says not to do and, and thus you are putting yourself over the law of God. You are putting yourself in the place of God. Which brings me to another part of the antidote to the fault-finding judgmental spirit, which is the recognition I am not the judge who determines the final outcome of people's souls. I hope that's not earth-shattering to you, but it may be a helpful reminder. James writes, There is one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy Thankfully, I'm not the judge, and thankfully, you are not the judge, because we do not have what it takes to get the job done, and we're not even close. We don't have the wisdom, we don't have the knowledge, we don't have the power to save or destroy. We fall short in so many areas. We are not privy to all of the information that other people are dealing with. And furthermore, we far too often misperceive and assign motives that that may not even be there. I can remember sitting in my office as headmaster having to try to decide between these various factions and difficulties and students who are wrangling. And and so often I wish, I just wish I knew more because I didn't know, I couldn't sort through it all. And furthermore, there were a handful of times where I completely blew it. I assigned a motive to a kid and I was completely off base. Humbling. So another vial of the anti-venom is simply the acknowledge we are brothers and sisters, not eternal judges of people's fates. And when we acknowledge that before God and before others, we're brought lower, we're humbled. And we have to wrestle with the question, who am I to judge my neighbor? Who am I? But there is an eternal judge who does have the wisdom, the knowledge, the power to save and to destroy. We prayed to him at the beginning of this service. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, 
all desires are known, and from whom no secrets are hid, and we could, uh, I'll add to it, and who has heard every word we have uttered. And thankfully, he is the righteous judge who came to save us from our judgmental spirits, from our breaking of the law of God, from our evil speech against others. For in his passion on the cross, Jesus is the judge who was judged in our place. Jesus was the judge who was judged in your place. I want you to consider with me for a moment what evil was spoken of Jesus upon the cross. What evil words were uttered about him. The God incarnate was reckoned a blasphemer. The eternal very truth, the logos, was called a liar. The rightful king and creator of the universe was called a false usurper. He who spoke words of life and peace was mocked as invectives were hurled down upon him one after another after another, words that would not be fit to speak in here. But the one who could have consigned all to destruction with just a word was silent. Like a lamb being led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth, except to bless. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He absorbed it all. All of the venomous hatred, all of the words, all of the false judgment, he took it all into his own body. And he took it all down to the grave. And in return, he gave blessing. The witness of the Holy Scriptures is that there upon the cross, the Son of God, the rightful judge, puts himself in the place of sinners. He steps down from the judge's seat and he puts himself in the docket. And he enacts the justice that they deserve upon himself. And it wasn't just for those sinners, it was for us as well. And the implications of this great act are are manifold for our present topic of judgmentalism and evil speech. And I want to give you just a few of the implications as I see it. First, the cross of Christ means that you can have the means of eternal forgiveness for your own judgmental, law-breaking spirit and forgiveness for the evil words that you have spoken to and behind the back of people. And so that if you find yourself racked with a measure of guilt, the cross of Christ is the place of forgiveness for you now. You can bring those things for which your conscience is ashamed before the cross, before the living God, and you can find forgiveness, and you can have a new heart. Second, the cross of Christ means that the evil words that others may have spoken about you and that you have absorbed into your psyche are not the final word about you. 
You know the kind of words that just kind of stick to us like a deep-seated burr we can't seem to get out. Not good enough. Worthless. You'll never measure up. Not as good as your sibling. Trash. Always mess up. Idiot. Moron. You know the words. Those are not the definitive word for those in Jesus Christ. For the eternal judge proclaims the final definitive word that defines you. I love you to the degree to which I was willing to go there so that you could be with me forever. That is his final definitive word over you. I just pray that you would let it sink into the very depths of your being and let it do its work and let it drown out all the other words. His tremendous self-giving love and care for you. Third, the cross of Christ means I don't have to define my worth comparing myself to others and I can let go of being the judge. I'm not made any better by the faults of others. I'm made better by the cross of Christ. I'm not loved more because others fall. I'm loved because of the cross of Christ. I have my own faults that need his forgiveness and there is a judge who is just. And even the evil word spoken against me doesn't need retaliation, getting even in turn, but can be responded to in love because of the cross of Christ. Fourth, the cross of Christ means that we can become people who reconcile. When you rub shoulders with others, there are bound to be hard words shared from time to time. But the cross of Christ means they do not have to be the final word between people. That he has given us the means of forgiveness. We can, you may have to do it tonight. I don't know. You may have someone to whom you need to go and say, I'm sorry. You may have a letter to write. You may have a conversation to be had. But the cross of Christ gives us the power to do it to have reconciliation. Finally, the cross of Christ means that we can become people who are not just marked by the absence of speaking evil words. It's not just a negative. But that we can be transformed into people who bless. Who uses our words to build up, to encourage. I'll close with a story of my grandpa Leo. Uh, Grandpa Leo grew up um, during the Depression. He was born in Arkansas. When he was two years old, his, far, his uh, father, who was a, a farmer, was uh, struck by lightning and killed, leaving my gra- great-grandmother with uh, Grandpa Leo and another younger brother in Arkansas during the Dust Bowl, needing to move to California. He grew up a pretty hard-scrabble, tough life, And he worked really, really hard. In fact, in some 30 years, I don't think he missed a day of work. 
I knew Grandpa Leo as a pretty hard man. Quiet with his words, and if his words were spoken, they were never affirming. So I was always fairly afraid of him, and didn't have a whole lot of affection between us. And that was when he wasn't drinking. For when the drinking started, sometimes the words got harsher, and the evil words came more quickly. Grandpa Leo didn't want to have anything to do with God for a great portion of his life. It wasn't until towards the end that God began to soften his heart. And he began to be drawn toward the Lord. And an amazing transformation happened as that took place. He began to speak over us words of affirmation and words of kind of care. And I never forget, I, I never thought I would hear him say, Chad, I'm proud of you. Or Chad, I, I love you. But he went from a fault-finding, judgmental spirit who had all kinds of stuff going on in his life, and I understand it. But by the grace of God, he, his final words over us were that of blessing and building up and love. And so may it so be with us that our words, this gift that God has given us, he who has spoken over us his word of love, that we may be not just a people who don't speak evil, but in fact a people who bless. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.